This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. Yes, and you are, and I am, and we're both here <laughs> to talk about movies again. Hey, we're doing it again. <laughs> hey, look at us. <laughs> hey, yeah, that's what it was. Hey, look at us. <laughs> now the, the episode has officially been blessed by saying, hey, look at us. And the irony being that you cannot. <laughs> <laughs> You literally can't look at us because we're in your ear holes. Uh, what's up? <laughs> I, on your encouragement, started and finished White Lotus finally. The White oh Lotus gosh. TV show. I don't even know what to say. I don't even I, know what to say. The first thing that I want to say that I forgot to add when we were texting about like what, what part why I was on and like when you're, you know, because you were like text me when you're finished with it. Um, and I forgot to send you a text that said... The fact that that one privileged white guy calls his wife Bubba Ugh. is so Tom and Katie from Vanderpump Rules. Yes. yes. And I'm like, are they directly being like punked now in real TV shows? Yeah, I wondered that, too. I was like, that couldn't have been incidental. That had to no. have been planned (laughs) it just made me laugh so hard because it was so intentional i'm like i feel like someone um i feel like mike white maybe watches vanderpump rules listen he is no stranger to reality television as we know as we twice twice on two different shows yeah so if if you guys have literally no idea what we're talking about um you know there's the hbo series white lotus that is on right now or just finished there was like what six episodes mm-hmm. um and if you are a stitcher premium subscriber and you listen to one of our latest episodes i sort of like talked about how i had just started it and danielle hadn't started it yet but i was only like i was only on the second or third episode and i was like what the fuck is going on and i walked <laughs> into it totally blind despite the fact that danielle and i are big fans of mike white who created the series and yes. so now fast forward we're both caught up we have a lot of questions we were like texting each other in all capital letters for like 15 20 minutes about the show <laughs> And I, this is one of those shows that I definitely don't want to spoil yes. for anyone. Um, but I do think it's worth it to say that the Natasha Rothwell, mm. Jennifer Coolidge relationship fucked me up the most. There are a lot of fucked up relationships in that show that will have you questioning life and society. But that one fucked me up the most. Yes, I will say that was truly it made me feel really emotionally invested to the point where I was like, 
I don't even know what to do with this emotion. Like, I'm just yeah. like, I don't know who to talk to about this. The other one, though, sort of related in a weird way is the two teenage girls. Yeah. Did you end up liking them? Because I know you hated them at first. How did you feel about them at the end? I don't like them. Still don't <laughs> like them. Honestly, that shook me because it was so indicative. And again, trying not to spoil it, but as all like young people's friendships are like, as, I guess they were like, what? They weren't in high school. They were like, in no, college, they were in college, like yeah. early college, still teens, like probably like 19 or something. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was so massively triggering to like, go back to those types of friendships where it was like two women sort of competing with each other in these mm-hmm. weird ways. And I was like, oh, no, like, I can't handle this either. Like, I can't handle any of these relationships. It's triggering. It's I got to hand it to Mike White. He can write the fuck out of some petty characters. Yes. <laughs> and really make them interesting and nuanced in ways that I did not expect to feel like it is. It's it's a show that if you have not watched and you have access to HBO Max, I think it is 100 percent worth watching. And that that relationship between the teen girls, because I don't know that I ever had like an outwardly competitive relationship with a friend beyond like middle school but I w- I'm, I'm curious did have you ever gone on vacation with somebody else's family absolutely yeah what was that like because that seemed like so uncomfortable to me <laughs> yeah I've had friends go on vacation with me and my family I gotta tell you it's probably probably wasn't great they were probably like what the fuck <laughs> who are these weird people which was a constant fear of mine when I was in middle school, by the way. Speaking of middle school, I was always like, I don't know. I don't. Why do I have friends? Um, but yeah, but it was that thing where I did go on vacation with this family um, when I was in school, whom the parents were like very very invested in their college, like the college that they went to and it's the South. Right. So everybody loves like college Southern football. Like it's, it's a huge thing down here of like the Auburns and Mm -hmm. the Florida States and the UNC's and all the shit like that, you know? And I remember I went on an entire vacation that was based on this weird, like the dad and mom were returning back to the college for some football game, but then also like their sororities or, or fraternities were like having some kind of get together. So I had literally no idea why I went. I was young. I was like, maybe like, I don't even know how old I was, maybe 14 or 15 years old. So I ended up going on this family trip with my friend. It was, and it was all wrapped up in this like weird college experience of the parents. That's, but then but then did that cause you to like bond with the friends a little Were the friends also like, oh, this is weird. Or were they like, no, this is great. We do this every year. It's part of our tradition. You know, I, I don't even really remember the reaction of my friend. I think I was just sort of like so paranoid that I wasn't doing the right thing or something like that, that right. I was like constantly just like concerned <laughs> with myself and my behavior versus like, what is my friend thinking? I went to Vermont once with but i went with my best friend so it was very 
even though like I had like we never really hung out with her parents, but I knew them and yeah. I was comfortable with her family. And she had like a little brother, a little sister that I knew. And they were, we were just, it was just mayhem. It was just like a bunch of kids in a cabin in the woods. And uh, the parents were like, knock yourselves out. Don't kill each other. And amazing. we'll see you later. Um, but then once when I was in high school, a friend of mine invited me to the shore with her like down to the New Jersey shore with her family. Okay. And they had um it was like a they're like she's like oh we have a like my family has a cottage on the beach or something like a beach house kind of thing. And so in my mind I'm thinking like 80s movies like this is about to be some tight shit. <laughs> and it was like sand swept floors and like <laughs> it was like a cottage <laughs> like there was wow. like two bedrooms and we were all all the kids were piled in one and then the parents were in the other it was a true cottage which is cool because it's like it was very low-key um but also i was like i don't know what i'm like i don't like swimming in the ocean that kind of freaked me out i'd never done that before and i just didn't feel super comfortable with it and her parents were very very religious and buttoned up kind of people yeah um, and I had already crossed the threshold into complete strange weirdo person. So I felt like I had to like be on my best behavior that week. And I was like, oh, weird. See, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> like, I think now, now that we're talking this out, it feels like going on vacation with another family at that age is a psychotic endeavor, as Daniel Henderson once said. <laughs> right? Because about it's babysitting. like, <laughs> yes. Honestly, like, how, can you even imagine like I can't even imagine going on vacation like being a little kid going on vacation with some other family and just like having that moment where you're like what are the rituals of this family I don't yeah. get it I don't know what's happening I'm stuck here if I have to sleep on a hideaway bed with my friend while her parents are fucking in the other room I'm gonna yeah. freak out like you know it's just like that moment where you're just like wow it's very strange I think people did that a lot because I think the premise behind that is especially and I'm, I'm going to make a bold, bold claim here. Mm. But I think especially with teenage girls, with young girls, parents want them to have company. Like they don't yeah. want to have to deal with the attitude and the boredom and the bullshit. And that in the traditional gender role sense, that's what I think is that more often you'll see a parent tell a teenage girl to invite a friend on vacation. Because they don't want to deal with that teenage girl. <laughs> You're right about that. And two, the other thing is that it is really at the request of the kid. Because I remember being yeah. that age and being like, oh, my God, I'm just going to die if I don't hang out with my friends 24 hours a day. And now, of course, I think that's nuts because I'm like, <laughs> I would love to go on vacation by myself every single time. <laughs> always like hard and fast rule. But like, you know. When you're like in middle school, you're very needy. You can't yeah. do anything. And and the thought of hanging out with your family, especially when it came to like rolling around the resort and talking to boys and shit, like no. You gotta have a partner in crime for that. You can't Absolutely. do that with your family, right? But that brings up another point too, which maybe I should ask my grandma this, but like as a parent now, I would not send my child to any family that I did not intimately know because they could be kidnapping that kid. They could be selling <laughs> that kid into fucking sex slavery. Like <laughs> it's not just a vacation anymore because you don't know. Like they could have guns in the house. Like you do not know about these families anymore. 
Okay, you were definitely raised by your grandma. Every time you, every time you have like super high key paranoia about situations, I'm like, that is, that's Carol, grandma's <laughs> granddaughter. Um, but you're right. It's true. Look, we're at a whole new level of that game. By the way, it's like you could be going with somebody who's unvaccinated, who exactly, like, exactly. is going to indoctrinate you in some fucking. <laughs> conspiracy theory shit you don't want to deal with it's like a whole new level of that game but i know what you mean i know what you mean well speaking of children and sending them away (laughs) (laughs) i did a segue (laughs) you just get better and better every week and i get worse and worse i just look for the moment i jump in (laughs) just jump in there i'm so into it but Amazing. it does fit our theme miraculously. It does. And we did not plan that, but it does. And our theme this week is Teacher, leave those kids alone. <laughs> <laughs> and what what is this theme about for you? Okay, so for me, I think when we walked into this theme, we were thinking, you know, obviously this is about school, right? And then we started thinking about, but what kind of school? Mm-hmm. And then we were like prep school, boarding school, some kind of like private school setting. I, I'm assuming you did not go to a private school when you were oh, growing up. Hell to the no. <laughs> OK, me neither, obviously. And I think you got to go way back into our archives to find this one. But the, the episode that we did about the dance conservatory movies, mm-hmm. I feel like it's the same idea. Yes. I personally, and I don't want to speak for you entirely, but I have a feeling maybe we share this, but I went to public school my entire life. The idea of private school, the idea of prep school, boarding school, especially like all male, all girls schools is so fascinating to me. Oh, same. Because that was not my life at all. No. And I I think not only was it confounding, like the just the very idea of it was confounding to me. Like you go away from your family to go to school when there's a school right down the road. Yeah. Like that was weird to me. But then also strange. We were so negatively impacted by pop culture when it came to prep schools. Like if that is your only experience of prep school, you, I think prep schools are the most fucked up places on the planet (laughs) based on what pop culture has taught me about prep schools. Absolutely. And I've never, I have met people since in my adult life that have gone to them, like only a couple, but they don't ever have anything positive to say. (laughs) So I truly question the, not the usefulness, but I do kind of question the that that po- if pop culture is getting something right about this very strange school structure. I think that in um, in Norway, public school or private schools are banned. Ooh. So all of the rich people of that nation have to send their kids to public school, which makes them support public schools. So the public school education is as good as a private school education would be. Wow. I mean, that's. <laughs> What a wonderful world that sounds like, you know? (laughs) So that's what's weird to me. But no, it's precisely that that I think is what makes it fascinating for me, because I think we have to make a distinction between something like Catholic high school Mm -hmm. or something versus like maybe what we're talking about, which is kind of more 
the traditional send your kids away to this like private school in Vermont or something like that. Right. With old, with other rich people's kids. Yeah. And then they're being groomed for some thing. I think you're absolutely correct that we are talking about the different. There's a difference basically between private school and prep school. And we're talking in this episode, our theme is about prep schools. Right. The thing about those schools that, and, and I think both of these movies that we picked today are very much about this, but the traditions and the rituals mm-hmm. and the sort of like the ways that like, you know, you have to have some sort of like proper behavior while in the school. And it's all about like families and dynasties and shit like that. I mean, that is like yeah. fucking so out of my purview. I'm like, I have no idea what that shit's about. At all. And so somebody like me is like, wow, like this blue blooded, like, prep school environment is so out the outsider looking inside right yes yeah because it's all about more than anything these schools are about conformity yeah and it's like if you want to benefit from everything we have to offer then you better fall in line not just now but for the rest of your goddamn life (laughs) like this is what this is about yeah and i think the notion of that is what makes good movies about prep school right that's why it's it's such an enticing topic for a film because you are able to talk about conformity and rule breaking and tradition and um you know stuff that's just like really interesting to talk about in the context of a screenplay or what have you so that's probably why you have a lot of bad experience. Like that's probably why there's a lot of bad portrayals about prep school that you've seen in popular culture is why you have your notions about it is because it's been, it's just such a sort of ripe topic for people. Yeah. I think it's also why I picked the movie I picked is because, and I, cause I don't have, it's a beloved film that I do not share the same sentiments that most people share about it. Oh my God. I am so ready to hear about this because <laughs> i think you're going first i am oh my god take him down baby take down it is it's not even no. a takedown it's not even a takedown but it is going to lose me some friends oh my god <laughs> my my friend jen jennifer abbott i know you're listening she listens to this podcast every week And she was like, I'm so excited to listen to your episode about the Lost Boys. And I have not heard from her since that episode came out. Like, I get that's one of her favorite (laughs) films. I guarantee she's like, I don't know if I can be friends with this motherfucker anymore. Listen, anytime we dangle close to the challenging of canon, I get very excited. (laughs) I start my my hands start getting in the motorcycle revving. Motorcycle mode. (laughs) Like, and and I'm with you. The your movie was absolutely like a part of my growing up. I absolutely watched it so many times and have it completely memorized backwards and forwards. But yeah, I want I want to hear what you have to say. I'm excited. We're getting into it. My movie was released in 1989. It was written by Tom Schulman and directed by Peter Weir. And that movie is Dead Poet Society. Welton Academy for Boys, a breeding ground for the future leaders of America, an institution dedicated to achievement, virtue, and conformity. 
a school whose rigid standards are upheld by every single teacher except one. Oh shit. So first let's let's get into a little background, little background on the movie. Um it was directed by Peter Weir, who is a very well-known Hollywood director. Uh, he he directed movies like Picnic at Hanging Rock, um, The Truman Show, uh, Green Card, The Mosquito Coast. Like he has just really, he has directed some of the most visually appealing films that have come out in the last you know few decades. Um, but he's also just really well respected and kind of just has a very interesting um, career and has chosen kind of interesting films. And he's Australian, so you know. Gotta throw that out there. So the writer is Tom Schulman, and I didn't know this at the time. I only figured this out when I was doing research for this show. He apparently based Welton Academy um, from this film on his own experience going to a prep school. So I think that oh, that wow. is um, kind of cool that he turned that experience into something that could translate so well on screen. Um, this film has. A murderer's row of actors, of great actors. Uh, we've got Robert Sean Leonard playing Neil Perry. Mm-hmm. The student the student lineup is just, uh, again, like thick with talent. All killer, no filler, baby. All killer, no filler. You've got Josh Charles as Knox Overstreet. Um, Gail Hansen's playing Charlie Dalton. Uh, and also Ethan Hawke is there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then you also have the late, the great Robin Williams playing John Keating, the teacher that rocks their world. Mm-hmm. So quick one sentence synopsis. An unconventional teacher returns to work at the prep school that almost broke his spirit and uses poetry to try to convince the future bankers, lawyers and doctors of the world to develop their souls before they cause the current collapse of America. (laughs) Also, Ethan Hawke is there. As fine a one-sentence synopsis as I've ever heard. <laughs> we will question the efficacy of whether or not that worked. Um, but this is because this is essentially a movie about the guy who turned you down for your mortgage. <laughs> like it's a movie about <laughs> toxic masculinity. And our, our theme could also very well be are white men okay? <laughs> There's a lot going on in these prep school movies. <laughs> Our AKA name. Our yes. AKA. Are white men okay? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> um, one thing that was really surprising to me right off the bat is how heartbreaking it is to see Robin Williams on screen. Like it is yes. still heartbreaking, even if you're watching Jumanji, even if you're watching something fun. It is absolutely heartbreaking that he's not here anymore. Yeah, I know. He's got such charisma. I got to tell you, I watched The Birdcage recently, too, and it made me think the same thing. I'm like, that motherfucker was so talented at acting. Yes. Like, you know, we forget that a lot of times because he was always like the comedian and not the actor to a lot of people. But when he acts like in serious roles, you're like, yeah. holy shit. He acted his fucking ass it just so because I think he brought... And it's easier to see now, you know, that he's gone, maybe that, you know, kind of look at these films a little more closely. But he he brought such a a distinct level of heartbreak to some of the dramatic roles while like smiling. He, He would say the most devastating shit while smiling. Yeah. And it was just 
the most human moments um, in some of the films that he was in. Like it just so heartbreaking to see, but also exciting to kind of like he gave us so much. So it's exciting to go back and relive uh, some of those those moments and to kind of steep yourself a little bit in that that joy and that struggle. And just he just gave us a lot. And he was he's like Tom Hanks, a staple of our childhood. Like was in so many movies. We had HBO when I was a kid, specifically so we so my grandma could watch comedy. She loved George Carlin. She loved the Whoopi Goldberg and and Robin Williams and Billy Crystal doing the you know comic relief and oh all my that. God. Like Classic. I just he just gave us so much, and I just I love love seeing him on on screen. Um, I gotta say, this film features one of my favorite things in the world, uh, which is bagpipes. I just, I just love, not the whole thing. I love the beginning of a bagpipe ditty because they just groan to a start that's like, oh, fuck, here we go again. (laughs) Do, 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 do. But there's always that groan like. (laughs) Yeah. I want a super cut of just bagpipe starts like just the beginning of the bagpipe makes me laugh so fucking hard because it's just like that bagpipe sounds how we all feel like oh fuck it's like the belly of it has to settle first and then you know it goes into the the sound completely you're so right about that it is the the groan when you're getting out of or into a comfortable chair it is everything (laughs) to me and it is also the perfect way to sum up Going back to school where you're like, oh, fuck, summer's over. I got to do this again. I got to get out of this car. My parents are going to be giving all my fucking medications to the teacher. And then, oh, there's my friends. Yay. I'm going to tell you, like, one thing that I was going to mention in my movie, but I'll just mention it right now since you just literally brought it up. I do love a good, like, summer like schools back in sesh yes a montage where it's like a lot of people like you know trying to find out where their uh their dorm is and their the parents <laughs> are dropping off the kids but i was really paying attention to that this time and like i said i've seen dead poet society like three thousand and five times but like this time i'm like oh i'm really gonna settle in to this uh-huh. like opening montage of the kids going back to school and there's this fucking kid. <laughs> the parents, some of the parents are leaving, right? And like, the, and, the, and some of the little kids are like hugging, and one and one of the dads like, no tears, son, no tears, it'll be fine. And then the next kid they show, he's crying while hugging his parents, and he's like, I don't want to go to this school. <laughs> and I was like, yo. That kid is gonna be crying on the toilet for the rest of the year. Like he is so not into this. And I was like, I feel it. I feel that shit, kid. You and me. I don't wanna go. Oh good. Oh, they're like, so funny. your whole academic career is gonna be impacted by this this moment. Your loneliness and your confusion is now a central part of your academic career. <laughs> 
Oh my god! Oh my god! I love, love, loved it. So we we start out with the Wilton Academy opening day. Parents are dropping people off. They're doing the big, you know, our school's about tradition and honor and discipline mm. and excellence. Um, some boys are coming back and they're they're friends, and you know, you're kind of seeing who their roommates are going to be. And Neil Perry, played by Robert Sean Leonard, um, is paired up with Todd Anderson, played by you know who. <laughs> well, but you do forget that he's in this movie because he's super little like he's like a little kid he's so young he's so young and so quiet and meek and that is like the the focal point of his character is that he is a sheltered quiet yeah. kid so neil and todd are roommates and what i love about this relationship throughout the film not just on this first day mm-hmm. is you get to see how kind and generous neil is based on how much he tries to include todd and in everything so he's not treating him like oh you're just some like fucking new kid freshman loser he's just like hey we're roommates what's up cool do you want to come to this thing with me do you want to hang he's just really inclusive and like just has this kind of kindness of spirit that I think is a really fun and great way to kind of show, but not tell what a character is, is like. Yeah. Um, so that really, I like that a lot. Well, I have a question for you then, because I've, I've kind of thought this and, and listen, there could be like some dissertation about this that I don't know about. Don't get into my DMS dead poet society stands, but <laughs> what are your thoughts on, on the Robert Sean Leonard character sort of being coded as queer? This is something that I wanted to talk about because I think that there is that un, it's kind of an, a very subtle it's it's not bold enough for me. I think if if he is going to be he was definitely coded as queer to me then as a kid yeah. when I first watched it and now. Yeah. But I think the way that that can't, comes through is you've got this kid who's on this track to be a doctor because his father is like I worked hard so that you could have this opportunity and you're going to do it. And they tried to code the queerness through acting. Like it wasn't just a social faux pas for him to want to act. It was more of a very, very culturally coded faux pas at that point. Because this is before the beat era and before, you know, it's before all the kind of explosion of art in a way that, you know, it was before fucking Howl, it was before all these things that I think ushered in this new era of queerness in a public way yeah, um, or in the public eye. And so, yeah, I think it was really, I can see it. I can see how that's possible that he was coded as queer, but I don't know. I wish if it was the case, I wish if that is the case, I wish that they'd gone harder in that direction. Yeah. Because I think that it's strange to have like an all boy school where that just doesn't even come up. Yeah. And, you know, part of me wondered if it was the era, like mm-hmm. if it was the faithfulness to the era that the film, because it's a period piece. Right? right. And I was thinking, well, in a more modern context, when, whenever the movie was made late 80s, 89, you know, I, it's not even we're not even clear for it being brought up in a movie from 1989, let alone the time period of the 50s, whenever this right. movie was taking place so there's this moment where i'm like i don't know if that was an intentional choice or they didn't think about it like they decided to not call him gay in the film because that was that wouldn't have happened in this era or if it was just like this wouldn't have happened in a movie in 1989 it's it's very interesting to me that's why i just wanted to know what you thought but well no i I think it's a it's an incredibly interesting point to bring up too because 
I think that's the central point of conflict between this character and his father. It's not that he doesn't want to do what his father wants him to do. It's that he is a creative and creative is code for queer. Yes. Yes. So he is the first thing his father does when you see them introduced in this film is his father tells him, um, you know, you're doing too much this year, so you don't get to edit the yearbook. Essentially, they call it the annual. Um, but his father makes him quit being the yearbook editor. He doesn't make him quit anything else. It's just don't do that creative queer thing. Yes. And then when he eventually, you know, the the one of the central points of this film is that Neil eventually tries out for this play, gets the role as Puck in Midsummer Night's Dream and lies to his father. Like yes. he just doesn't tell his father that he's doing this play and also forges a letter from his father that says he can be part of it for that reason. I think, and especially that he plays Puck, which is a, definitely a queer-coded character as well. See? Layers. This is interesting. Layers. Layers. Um, but I just loved Neil from the jump. I thought he was such a sweet... I feel like when I, when I first saw this film and I was like 12 or 13, everyone kind of picked their dude, like... As if we were pick, you know, like people just picked their dude and like, were you a Knox Overstreet or were you? I was always a Neil, which considering what happens to him at the end says so much about me. <laughs> I was going to say, you know that I'm a Jonathan Knight girl. So, of course, you know, I'm Neil. Neil to the end, baby. I, 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 a little little Knox Overstreet, not going to lie. Um, I OK, let's not, we're going to get to Knox Overstreet because okay. <laughs> little baby Josh. So Josh Charles is also. One of the main characters he plays, Knox Overstreet, tiny baby Josh Charles, little baby Josh Charles. Um, also, we have our chaotic good, our problematic fave. <laughs> chaotic good. <laughs> We've got Gail Hansen playing Charlie Dalton. Charlie Ooh. is chaotic good. Oh, my God. Absolutely. Has anyone actually done one of those charts with the the boys from Dead Poet Society? Because I would be so curious to know. If not, can someone please do that for the show? Yes. <laughs> Just curious. We'll repost it on our social media. We absolutely will. Because Charlie, chaotic good. I think I think it would be interesting to see where the other characters fall as well. Yeah. Um, but Charlie is like. How would you describe Charlie? So he's kind of always wanting to push things to the fucking limit. Yeah. But he know he does that knowing that he has his privilege to fall back on, because that's something else we're going to talk about a lot. I think with both of these films is the usefulness or the presence of privilege. And so Charlie is like he when he left school, he moved. I feel like he moved to the East Village for five years, became a civil rights lawyer retired off of his inheritance at age 50 and tells his grandkids that like he once had sex with a black woman when he's super drunk at weddings. Yes. Like, yeah, I lived in the village. I got down. And you're like, grandpa, please take a nap. Please take a seat. Like that's this kind of like, that's what I mean when I say chaotic, like his intentions are great. But yeah. he his execution is miserable. <laughs> oh my so God. this whole Nuwanda thing where he like in part of the, you know, the poetry in the cave and he's like calling himself Nuwanda and painting himself with like tr lipstick and a tribal yeah. way. It's like it's very problematic. But you understand that he's trying to get to the the root of a truth of something by kind of co-opting 
<laughs> some cultural <laughs> markers that he should not be co-opting. Look, that happens in my movie too. Don't get it twisted. It does. And, and the interesting thing about it is that I think that there is this sort of um, language or there is this sort of notion that they're like, these are characters that are obsessed with like rebellion and, mm-hmm. you know, being nonconformist. And there's a part of me that wonders if, if in that era, being a nonconformist was literally like being interested in anything that wasn't fucking white and being, exactly. you know, interested in anything that was like not a part of this like upper crust white privileged society. Exactly. Um, and they were using that as a way to be rebellious, to, as a way to rebel against that. Right. Completely true. I completely agree. Yeah. And I think that's why. It's kind of why the the ultimate heartbreak for me in this film is the Neil Perry character, because he's kind of fighting that system from every side, but he's just sinking under the weight of generational responsibility. So he can't yes. actually participate in dismantling that system the way that he wants to. But then you've got your Knox Overstreets who, yeah, he stood on a desk once when he was 16, but he probably ended up marrying Chris. And then he's he's the guy who like disowned his son for going to the prom with Molly Ringwald and Pretty in Pink. Like they... <laughs> they always become who they were meant to be like in this era there's not too much rocking that boat so even if you have that desire to stand up to your privilege and kind of want to examine it for some in this era everyone seemed to always fall back in line and i say in this era considering the ending of white lotus which we're not going to spoil where kind of maybe it's not so old-fashioned to think about that um so yeah so this is like the setting where basically john keating is new to teaching at this school. These these are the boys that he is is going to meet. Like these are just a, a sampling of the boys that he's going to be teaching. And um, he used to go to the school. And his first lesson, <laughs> his first lesson, is to take them out to the hallway and point out the photos of all of the class, the classes of of people who have graduated from that school, mm-hmm. and basically be like, see all these guys, they're all dead. So seize the day, like. Yeah. <laughs> His first lesson is we're all going to die, which you got to respect for a teacher to be like, it's all uphill from here in this class as I teach you about fucking Walt Whitman. Look, bold as fuck. And I love it. Just say I, I love it. I love it. We're all going to die moment for a teen. <laughs> <laughs> and he comes in and he's just a ball of beautiful energy yeah. and is just so curious. He's just so curious. And so he basically says, like, he wants them to not just repeat poetry or repeat what they see in these textbooks, but to really feel it and see how they can incorporate it into their lives in a way that makes them just better and more fulfilled people. So the boys find his yearbook from the year he graduated. And in the yearbook, he mentions in his quote, um, something about the Dead Poet Society. So Neil, of course, is like, what the fuck is that? I'm right. all ears. And Keating tries to push it off like, oh, it was just a secret society where we used to gather with friends in this cave and read poetry. And, you know, we were romantics, um, you know, but forget it. Like it was old news. But then that night, Neil finds the book of verses, five centuries of verse that was Keating's that he used to read 
at the beginning of every meeting. So you mm-hmm. kind of get that again. In terms of screenwriting, I really love that back and forth where it's like that that telegraphed acceptance and passing of the torch. Yes. Um, and he's he passed it to Neil specifically for a reason. Yeah. And so Neil's the one who kind of gathers everyone and is like, we're going to that fucking cave. We're going to read poetry tonight. Todd doesn't want to read. He's very pent up. But true to form, Neil invites him anyway and is like, let me just make sure it's cool with all the dudes, but you're in. Um, so they all go to this cave and start kind of really having just some freedom and joy. Like you've seen them have joy in this film before, like they like being around each other and seeing each other. But it's the freedom that really hooks you into this um, this story. And one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when... You know, because despite what I've said about it, you know, being about, you know, the guy who would will turn down your mortgage application. um, (laughs) I think that it really is truly there are some really touching moments in the movie. And I know that this movie tends to make it on a lot of lists. Like if you want a good cry or, you know, and I never really felt like that about it. Um, But then I also cried when I watched it this time. Me too. (laughs) I was like, what is that about? Um, But my favorite scene is when Keating convinces Todd, who is so nervous and so shy uh, to create and read a poem on the spot in front of class. Like he's Mm. like, I can't do this. I didn't do the assignment. I cannot write poetry. And Keating stands him up and is like, look at that picture of Walt Whitman. Tell me what you see. And as he covers his eyes and walks him through it, and it's just like one on one, I think it's just so inspiring to see how a teacher can really connect to a student in in the smallest of ways. But from that moment on, that character is completely opened up. Yeah. to the world. Um, so I just, I love that, that scene. Um, so, so, so much. And it reminded me of this game I used to play. <laughs> it reminded me of this game I used to play when I lived in Alaska and I was working at this restaurant and one of the servers, um, we would all get like stay after and have our shift drink. And then we probably, you know, we'd usually end up going out drinking somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And he always had this book of like this compendium, this Walt Whitman compendium. And he would, he developed this game called ask Walt. And <laughs> he would basically say, you know, like take a shot, ask the universe a question. And then he would just randomly flip to a page and read from it and be like, here's yeah. your answer. And it kind of works because Walt Whitman was definitely a, a poet in that way um, yeah. or poetic in that way. Yeah. Um, so it just reminded me of like, you know, Walt Whitman has a, has a, an effect on all of us, I guess, from this film. If you've seen this film, you've read Walt Whitman at some point in your life. When this film came out, I was literally all the transcendentalist books. Like, I just was like, what, what do they mention? Like who, who is Keating obsessed with? And that will be my interests. Um, exactly. And there's something actually so pleasing about that scene with Todd and Keating and also just the the idea of of seeing the character evolve throughout this film, because his character is the most resistant to the general ideas that Keating is bringing up, which is that you have to be spontaneous and seize the day and sort of like, you know, get out of the conformity trap and get, you know, be yourself and feel the fire, the passion, you know, and live your life. Right. Yeah. You know, he's sort of um, unsure of how to how to do that. And Everybody else, all the other characters, to varying degrees. I mean, Charlie is already there. You can already tell Charlie's like, I've oh. been waiting for this guy to show up my entire <laughs> life so that I could just fucking be the 
horn blowing weirdo that I've always meant to be. Uh, <laughs> but Todd is the is the one where you're like, oh my god, like to see his sort of evolution throughout the movie is so pleasing like that's just that whole part is so great to me it's so pleasing and it also puts a lot of fucking pressure on teachers like classroom sizes are too big now for someone to do that for your (laughs) your fucking kid like if your kid makes it home alive that teacher is a triumph but it's also like it's it's so there's so many beautiful moments like that in this film where you're watching someone try to coax people out of conformity. But that's also the frustration for me ultimately with this movie now at 44. Mm-hmm. It was inspiring as fuck to me when I was a kid. I'm like, yeah, let's stand on some desk. Let's see the world in a different way. Let's fuck shit up. Um But the frustration with this movie is that you want to think that these kids were changed, but how could that be possible? And it's kind of it's the greatest fallacy of this film to try to give a beating heart to the ruling class. Yeah. I just don't think that 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 is possible. Maybe I want to be wrong, but then I look at the world and I'm like, nope, (laughs) it isn't wrong. Greed still rules. All empathy is non-existent. We live in a society Ugh, this it's depressing. I didn't want to finish that sentence because I'm like, it makes me depressed. <laughs> but. No, but they, but you're right, because it is there are many points in this movie where these kids are inspired by and become very protective of him as their teacher, as their sort of mentor. But there are certain things that happen, which I won't talk about because it would spoil the movie. And I'm sure you're you probably don't want that to happen. But <laughs> that call that really call that into question whether like how how protective of him are they and yeah sure he's this like whimsical wonderful like renaissance man that's like brought color into their lives but mm-hmm. w- does that have actual real world implications like how far do they go down that road for him and exactly you know i think that that's sort of it just goes back to what you just said about sort of the idea that they in all likelihood Of course, we don't know because there wasn't a sequel to tell us, but um, in all likelihood, they did deny your mortgage and never fucking thought about poetry again. Yeah. Well, exactly. That's the thing that it just again, like when I watched this film this time, I was so fucking frustrated because I'm like, wait a minute. Does it matter that you are sorry if you signed that piece of paper anyway, condemning a man? Yeah. To losing his job or losing his livelihood. Like what you're feeling like it's kind of that fuck your feelings moment. Like fuck your feelings. You did the dirty deed. Yeah. Let's focus on that instead of the I felt bad while I did it, but I absolutely did it. Yeah. And I think that's just something that we've never quite rectified with uh, culturally. We've just never really had a reckoning with that moment, Um, not just in this film. But in our culture of like, all right, you might feel bad about it, but you fucking did it. Like you stood there and said nothing while racist shit was happening. You stood there and didn't protect people that needed protection. Like you didn't push for things that needed to be pushed for. Okay, you feel bad about it, but you fucking did it. Like you I just I kind of I just have a real personal reluctance for excusing bad behavior when it definitively negatively impacts the lives of disenfranchised people. Right. Well, yeah, it's, 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 this movie is, I think it is a movie that is, is part of 
a tradition of these very inspirational, like certainly within the context of like teacher films or like inspirational figures. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's on a lot of hoity-toity film lists and, and it's beloved. But also there is like, it has to be talked about in other ways too. Like we love this movie so much from our childhood and it, listen, I watched this an hour before we sp- press record and i was crying i was a mess yeah, yeah i was a too. fucking mess even have having seen it 300 3005 <laughs> times um <laughs> but yeah i mean i think there are moments of the movie that are different now in a modern context than it was back then and just sort of like yeah like that type of person has changed as well right. like capitalism has changed like everything mm-hmm. has changed since this movie was made so you know like tbd a little bit with with some of these folks i mean honestly like the most depressing part is that they are back in that school the next year having norman fucking lloyd (laughs) yell in their faces in his scary ass way (laughs) and they're getting popped on the ass with that like wooden paddle with the holes in it oh god that paddle Get out of here with that. And look, nobody wants us. Nobody who made this movie wants us to be thinking this deeply about this film in 2021. They're like, why don't you just listen to the swelling orchestral music and cry and go away? <laughs> like nobody wants this, this in-depth analysis, but you're getting it. Because I also knew when I was a kid watching this movie, even though it affected me, I knew that this movie was not made for me. Yeah. It was about white boys. It was not about black girls. Yeah. And it was about wealthy white boys, not about poor black girls. So I was still affected by it as someone who, you know, was starting to develop a language for loving art. Right. But it wasn't for me. And so I think that it's just kind of like, yeah, we do deserve to kind of, as you always say, Millie, we deserve to go back and look at movies with fresh eyes and kind of see where we are now that we're at these different points in our lives. And I I'm not even saying that I don't still love the movie. It is still deeply affecting. I'm just angrier now about who those characters are now that we live in this world. Absolutely. hundred percent. Now we can see the through line very clearly. Um and and you're right. I of course when I was watching this as a younger person, I got really caught up in, you know, the romanticism of the poetry and the character mm-hmm. of John Keating and you know, of course I did think that the boys in this movie were like the Beatles and we all had our favorites. <laughs> um but now, you know, and I think it's just age, but now it's like I do feel more for them, like and I don't know if this is some kind of like parental instinct or something like that, but like mm-hmm. man, the Neil and his dad story really hit me like oh. extra hard this time. The Todd story hit me hard. Like the scene where he talks about how his parents got him the same death set that he got the year before for his birthday and how they were just basically phoning in his fucking birthday and phoning in their fucking parenting (laughs) yeah exactly and it was just sort of like and 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 it was that moment that neil catches todd like sitting outside by himself looking at this re-gifted desk set and neil is the one that you know makes him feel better and like you know Mm -hmm. makes the lemonade out of the lemons and so his his Neil's character was so much more present for me and and his gifts and like it ultimately becomes like very sad for him. Yeah. But yeah, just really like di- a different vibe for me. Also, Charlie Dalton, more annoying than ever. So annoying. Um, 
Because essentially it's his fucking fault that they went down, which, by the way, I don't know if anybody really knows that, but he was the one that posted that shit in the paper about them. He revealed the secret. I knew he was going to be trouble from the minute they're outside doing that exercise where Keating is getting them to walk. And he points out how easy conformity is because they all start out with their own stride and then they all fall in line and then everyone around them starts clapping to a beat so he's using it to make a point and then he's like everyone just walk like go walk i knew charlie was trouble from the minute he said i'm exercising my right to not walk there's always one of those motherfuckers in class like i'm gonna just not do it and call it the assignment absolutely the fuck not you are trouble you are chaotic good yeah, he's got some fucking triple Sagittarius energy Ugh. or some shit because it was like that. And he he pulled the prank, you know, in the chapel where he's basically like answering the, the phone about letting girls into the school, mm-hmm. which is why he ends up getting paddled by fucking scary Norman Lloyd. But mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, chaotic, good, triple Sagittarius. I don't know what to say about him, but he's annoying the shit out of me this time. And he's Cameron takes the fall. I feel like that character who plays um, Cameron, his name's Dylan Cussman. Cameron takes the fall, but it's truly Charlie who starts the charge. Absolutely. Truly Charlie. And again, gotta say, actually, I'm not going to say it. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Don't tease us like this. No, I will say, though, that when I was looking up, you know, researching who these actors have become and what they've done since Gail Hansen, who played Charlie Dalton um, has since become a TV executive or and a film executive. And his Twitter bio says um, he has, you know, list some of his, his contact info, but then he says dad to he, him and they, them. Hmm. And he posts a lot about like, like civil rights and justice stuff. So I feel like he, hey. he did not turn out to be Charlie. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> but in the in the end, I I do still think this movie is inspiring and and affecting. I also just think that once we've been through Occupy Wall Street, you have to look at it with different eyes. <laughs> Ain't that always the way? Well, honestly, a movie that is a it's a huge one to take on. And I'm glad you did it. I'm glad I got to watch it for the 3006th time. (laughs) And, you know, it was enjoyable. It's still enjoyable to watch. I mean, just like, listen, I love a farty bagpipe, too. I I didn't realize that until you said it. (laughs) I want a supercut. It's just a bagpipe supercut. Just the beginning. Just the beginning. I'll be a happy woman. We are naming this episode Bagpipe Supercut, by the way. <laughs> Just to let you know. But I'm so I'm so glad you picked it. It again, regardless of how you come into seeing it again in, in a modern context, it's a great one to watch again. We Absolutely. have to do that. So you gotta do it. Yeah. You gotta watch watch it again for the first time. Wasn't that a tagline of some movie? Or was it no, it's cats. The fucking cats musical. <gasps> See it again for the first time. All right. Sign of the cross. I can't believe I invoked Absolutely cats. the fuck not. <laughs> cursed this episode. Blessed and then cursed it. Oh Lord. Well, out of the frying pan and into the fryer, as someone <laughs> once said. Because we got another prep school story. So my film for the theme of teacher leave those kids alone 
is a movie from 1968. It was directed by Lindsay Anderson, and it's called If. This is an English public school. This is where Britain raised its empire builders of yesterday and still trains its leaders of tomorrow. This is the unchanging English public school. This is where you still learn to play the game. If dot, 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 technically, if you want to go there. It's about Janet Jackson. Yes, it is about the making of the if video by Janet Jackson. <laughs> so here we go. Let's talk about it. OK, she wore that vest. Um, um, I only prepared notes for the Janet Jackson. If videos. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> well, care to hear about British New Wave then? Sorry. Yeah. Look. I'm going to actually take it back to last week's episode, if I may. Mm. So the last episode, we talked about a movie called Semi-Tough, <laughs> our ayahuasca-fueled episode where Danielle and I were on one about Semi-Tough, okay? <laughs> and we t- Danielle talked a lot about how Semi-Tough was a satire of the self-help or you know self-actualization industry or whatever in the 70s, and also about how it's the weirdest movie of all time, duh. But here we are the week after, and we have another satire film. If is a satire about the public school system in England. Now, I didn't actually know this until I was doing research for this episode, but forgive me if I'm getting this wrong. I think in England, public school means something different than it does here in America. So like in England, public school, I think means private school. Right. Or like a fancy boarding school. Whereas, of course, here it's the total opposite. If somebody does want to get in my DMs and give me like a very detailed history of the school system in England, I'll allow it. Okay, the DMs are open for that only. (laughs) Literally only that. Everything else (laughs) closed now. okay, let's orient ourselves for this movie. The 1960s were a big era for movie satire in general. Right. Because you got the counterculture going on and there were lots of different types of movies that were using satire right as a way to kind of knock over these like big institutions like and and the movies i'm thinking of are like dr strange love the bed sitting room the loved one stuff like that right and i feel like if is sort of in that category it would have been kind of in that same era but it's also like one of the classic prep school movies, right? I mean, it's um, it's a classic and it influenced a lot of other prep school movies that were made later. But Lindsay Anderson, the director of If, right, he started his career as a, as a critic, a film critic. And then he moved into like making these documentaries in the late 40s and like early 50s, right? And they had a big influence on his later work because he started making narrative films in the 60s. And it was part of this group of directors in England that were making movies that were called kitchen sink films. And later they're sort of classified as sort of the British new wave of the 1960s. But these are movies like The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner and A Taste of Honey Saturday Night and Sunday Morning with Albert Finney, Cass by Ken Loach. And Lindsay Anderson made If as sort of the first movie in this trilogy about this character named Mick Travis. And he was played each time by Malcolm McDowell, whom everyone probably knows him best for being in A Clockwork Orange. But what's interesting about that is that If was actually his first movie. And Mm -hmm. allegedly... 
Stanley Kubrick hired him for a Clockwork Orange based on his performance at If. So I think that's really cool. Damn. Um, so a one sentence synopsis of If, if I oh, may. Oh, good luck. Okay. I try to not get too in the weeds with this, but let's see. A young man who attends a strict and conservative all-male boarding school finds creative ways to rebel and fight back, both in his fantasies and in real life. Perfection. Okay, good. Thank I you. couldn't have done it. I couldn't have done it. <laughs> okay. So, as we said in the intro to this theme, right, I've never been to a private school. I'm endlessly fascinated with the ritual and insular nature of these schools, right? And man, this school that Ooh. Mick Travis attends is fucking miserable. Okay. <laughs> From the jump. From the first minute. Okay. And apparently it was shot at the school that Lindsay Anderson, the director, actually went to, which is terrifying. See, this is the connection you've got in, in my film and Dead, Dead Poet Society. Tom Schulman writing about the school that he went to. Lindsay Anderson also affected by the school he went to. Look, I think that private schools are possibly causing so much trauma that is being filtered into the television and film world <laughs> where like you and I are not writing about prep schools because we don't know anything about them. But all the prep schools, all the prep school cinema is written by people who survived it, I guess. Exactly. I guess that's how it's going to work out. <laughs> so. Like Dead Poet Society, the first few minutes of of If are just kind of getting all of us, the viewers, settled into what this place is. And it's and it's like same concept. Little kids running around in uniforms, except they're getting yelled at by people left and right. Uh, being called scum. Oh, called scum. Very nice. Setting up their little desks and bedrooms, which look awful and oh, dreary. Rotten and they need a coat of paint in every fucking room in that place. Yo, it's it was so claustrophobic to me that I was like, oh, my God, how are these kids? I mean, it looked like an old timey orphanage or like a <laughs> juvie hall. It was like, it looked like a fucking kid jail. I was like, Jesus these are rich kids going to this fucking place? Okay, I guess. I don't know what's <laughs> happening here. Reverse psychology or something. So we got to talk about like the social scene of this school. Okay. So in terms of the students, there is like two sides. There's the juniors who are kind of more maybe middle school age. And then there's the senior kids who are presumably like, I don't know, anywhere between like 14 and 17. Okay. And of course, as there are in all of these movies, there's a headmaster and a priest and a bunch of teachers and people making stews and shit. Like, of course, there are those people. However, the students basically live in fear of these four senior boys, okay, who are students at the school, mind you, mm -hmm. and they're called whips, right? And like I said, I never went to private school, but I got to tell you, these little fuckers who are essentially these like elevated like hall monitors, but also like <laughs> drill sergeants. They are the bane of everyone's existence at a school. And, and everyone is watching their back for these whips. Oh, well, and they should be because they'll randomly shout out things like go warm up my toilet seat for me. OK, this is outrageous to somebody who never went to private school. <laughs> I'm sure you feel the same. But like these four little fuckers, as I mentioned, they have all this unchecked power 
to not only tell other kids what to do every second of their day and to like inspect their fucking bodies and haircuts and living spaces like whenever they want, but they also get to punish people, like physically punish people, make them take cold showers. They get to hand out spankings with canes. Okay. Uh, uh. And on top of all this, they are somehow allowed to make some of the little kids be their servants. Mm-hmm. And there are multiple scenes in the movie where there are these little kids who are waiting for these like teenage boys to get out of the bath so they can give them towels and shave their faces and stuff. Okay. I can't. I can't. And there's also like, there's so many scenes where you see that happening where like these kids have become servants for these older kids. And then you also see those same children now enacting cruelty on their own classmates. Like it just does not fall far from the tree at all. Like once they're given a little bit of connection to the power structure in that school, they start being as cruel as possible when they can. Oh, yeah. It's like the bullied becomes the bully. It's like a Mm cycle, the cycle of bullying. Right. Because there's this younger student at the beginning of the film named Jute who arrives and these like two little boys are trying to prep him into like getting all of the whips names right and getting all the details about the school right or they get beaten Mm -hmm. so it's just this weird moment where you're like oh everyone's getting their ass kicked in this school and the hierarchy is here to stay and there's no way around it you just have to like fall into line right and the weirdest part too is that so there's these whips you know i think the head the head whip, I don't know how this this works, <laughs> is this guy, Ra- Roundtree, just like the shittiest of the shit, right? Just the worst Brutal. little kid. And the the four of them kind of sit around in their like little whip office or whatever. And they talk about these like little servants as if they were like their little love slaves, which adds this whole like homophobic component to these little mm-hmm. kids. And I'm like, this is so hardcore, right? And it seems like this really hopeless, miserable environment that, like your film, suppresses creativity and lust for life. And there's just tons of rigid protocol, hazing, Mm -hmm. white exceptionalism. And you just know that this system turns out generations upon generations of these like rich psycho assholes that ruin the planet for centuries. Like we know this, right? (laughs) Just just plain spoken. (laughs) Yes, that's right. And also you could tell that this school was going to be incredibly fucked up based on the opening uh, dinner scene where there, there's a painting behind the headmaster and all of the kind of the head, the adult heads of the school. And this homeboy looks like Orson Welles <laughs> and he's wearing about 15 trench coats, like 15 coats with the fur collars <laughs> and a ruffle neck and a beret. Like he is not someone to fuck around. Like if this is who helped found this school, there is no joy to be found here. This motherfucker is wearing 15 fucking coats. Yes. And a ruffle. Exactly. Like it's so over the top. And we know this is a satire. It's supposed to be that way. But it is like when you actually like look at what's going on in this movie at the very beginning, you're like, oh, my God, this place is like hell on earth. And needless to say, there's this group of three senior kids, Mick Travis, again, played by Michael McDowell, 
two of his buddies, Wallace and Knightley. And they are essentially the Charlie Daltons of the school. They're the true nonconformists <laughs> in this cesspool. They sneak vodka into the school. They smoke cigarettes. They're obsessed with revolution. And they just have this like whole other vibe to them. That's obviously just not in line with anybody else in the school. Right. And like we mentioned, you know, with the Charlie Dalton character, they're obsessed with revolutionary figures and they pull pictures of people of color out of magazines and post them on the walls. And they're interested in like warfare and, and, you know, indigenous people from other countries. And it's this idea of, you know, like we were talking about earlier, just idea that just sort of like, they're obviously rebelling against the system that they're in. And part of doing that is showing these other people that they're interested in like non-white culture. Right. Right. But, you know, just like in Dead Poet Society, like all these kids have to go to chapel and do all this religious stuff and they have to attend military drills and ceremonies and everything. And as the movie goes on, Mick and his friends are just doing everything they can to fuck with this system. And there's this one scene where Mick and Knightley sneak out of the school they, they go into the city, which is forbidden. So they sneak out into the city. They steal a motorcycle from a showroom, which is bold as hell. Like the guy selling the motorcycles is sitting there at his desk and they just walk in and they're like, oh, I'm just going to start this motorcycle and drive it out of the showroom. But it also definitely relates. It's a parallel with Dead Poet Society in that their privilege allows them this chance to be rebellious because they know nothing bad is going to happen to them. Right. Exactly. So is it really rebellion? Because it's like they're still resting on the laurels of privilege. Yes. Obviously, very contextualized in this in this world that they're in. Right. But, you know, they they steal this motorcycle. They end up meeting this girl, at this cafe. And there's like this the scene of the three of them riding this motorcycle together. And there's all these like trees behind them. And it's actually, it kind of reminds me of the bicycle scene from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid. <laughs> it's very like sixties, yeah. like kind of counterculture. Um, but it sort of is that feeling of this is, they feel like themselves in the city, having fun, hanging out with girls, driving the motorcycle through the woods or whatever, and not, you know, literally dealing with whips, telling them to cut their hair. Like, it's just that right. moment where like, these kids are trapped and they have to find this freedom somewhere else. Right. And, you know, at one point, Mick actually does something that's bad enough to be whipped by the whips. Right. <laughs> yeah. And he gets like three times the amount of lashings as everybody else. Because, you know, he's the one they want to kill his spirit so bad and they just want him to fall in line so badly. Um, but like I said, like during the movie, you know, it, it feels like a satire, but it's also doing like a lot of other like interesting things. Like there's these uh, very weird, like absurd little flashes where the teachers are like doing something weird. Like there's a scene where uh, one of the women, the adults is like walking around naked and there's yeah. like w the priest comes out of a coffin in a bookcase at one yeah. point. And it does make you feel like, okay, I don't know what this is. Is this like real life? Is this a fantasy? We don't know, right? Right. And furthering that is this idea that there's all these transitions that are happening in the movie to kind of suggest that Mick is having fantasies of things. Like there's this whole scene 
when he meets the girl in the cafe where they start wrestling and then they're suddenly naked Mm -hmm. and you're like, oh, well, obviously this isn't happening in real life. This is happening in a fantasy that he's having. But it's very subtle, which I think is part of the satirical nature of this film, but also is kind of like it it evokes that countercultural feel of kind of like anything can happen at any time. Like it's almost like a staged environment in a weird way. Right. And also, too, a lot of times in the movie, the scene will go from like black and white to color. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, because when I first the first time it happened, I thought it was a flashback. Yeah, because that's kind of the way that I've been taught in the modern parlance to think of black and white in films. Absolutely. But it's not. Yeah. Weirdly enough, I read that the transition from black and white was initially something that they used as like a money saving technique. Like, I feel like there's an interview with Malcolm McDowell that I read. I think it's with him where he talks about how basically they were trying to save money. They didn't want to light this scene for color. Um, I think it was one of the like chapel scenes. And so they just decided to shoot in black and white, but then they just kept doing it. So I actually don't (laughs) think it was supposed to have been, symbolic at all right but then it kind of became symbolic and then you're right i definitely think that we're trained to think that a transition like that is something about a flashback but yeah and this movie is happening randomly and at first i was trying to really figure it out but then i just gave up and i was like yeah you know what i'm gonna let this happen when it happens and it's just gonna have to be whimsical and have no reason for me. I felt the same way. I'm like, I, I, I don't know if it's part of the fantasy. I don't know if it's part of the t- fuck time, fucking with time or the time yeah. fuckery. So I'm just going to let it roll over me and let it wash over me. Listen, I just chalk it up to people taking LSD in the 60s and <laughs> making movies or something. That's that's all I can say, because sometimes I watch some of these 60s counterculture movies and I'm like, what? Like, I want to I want to be supportive of this, but this is just like too much for me yeah i want you to have your drugs and your creative vision but then sometimes as a viewer i'm like all right have your drugs but also hire an editor yeah (laughs) i could go down a list of movies that i've seen in my life where i've been like i used to love that movie because i thought it was super trippy and now i'm like i'm done Uh can't watch it again can't watch it again and actually if is not one of those films i will say i mean Here's what I'm going to say about the ending of If, because it's a big one, so I'm not going to give it away. Sorry. I do think that this is one of those movies that has this kind of notorious sort of big controversial ending. And it was actually a big deal even back in 1968, because when the movie was released, it got an X rating when it came out. Yeah. But I think I will say I'll say this because after seeing it again for this episode, like the setup to it. AKA the first 90% of the film (laughs) genuinely is pretty absurd. Like as the setup to what happens in the last 10% of the film, you know, like there's an entire sequence that happens right before it that has like zero dialogue. And there is this moment after watching it again, where I thought it's even possible that the ending is maybe a fantasy. Like, maybe it didn't actually happen. Like, maybe it wasn't in the reality of the film, right? I think from the moment they do the military training on, it mostly felt like a fantasy to me. Yes. Because of what happens, like you said, that first 90% of the film and that last 10% felt like it was all very fantastical. 
Yeah. And maybe that was the point. Like, uh, again, like maybe that was the idea of the film to begin with, which was that we weren't going to be able to discern whether or not we were in his head. Like if he was actually sitting in his room being miserable, having just been beaten by the whips and no progress is made or if it actually happened, like if he actually got to exact his revenge on this school. Right. Yes. So it's interesting. And for that reason alone, I think it makes if a very interesting movie to watch. Oh, yeah. Um, It's super compelling. Definitely a classic among movies about prep school. I mean, you can see the influence of this movie, I think, in movies like Rushmore by Wes Anderson and even something like Dead Poet Society. Like you can see that. But it is like definitely of its era. And it definitely is a satire and it it really amps up the cruelty of that system. Yes. And sort of really gets you to think about like, who are the people that participate in that environment and who are the people that don't want anything to do with it? And like your movie, it's kind of like, how does that play out? Is it that they kind of mildly, they get their like little rebellious kick for a semester and then they're back in line (laughs) ruining the world? Or do they like actually have like a light bulb go off where they're like, I don't want this. I got to get out of here. I got to sabotage this, you know, whatever. It's just very interesting. And that's, I think, what the theme is about this week, you know? No, it definitely is. I I think this was a fantastic pick for this theme. And I'm so glad that you picked this film. I'd never seen it. And I was like, what am I watching? I like it. I'm into (laughs) it. I'm definitely I definitely find it compelling. But what is happening? And I think that you're right. Like it does dovetail really nicely with that notion of, well, what do these people become? And do they only have these revenge fantasies as their way to be real people in their lives? Um, Because I'm I'm always astonished when like when I really like a British comedian and then I find out like they went to Eton or something. Yeah. And I'm like, how are you so funny and personable? But you went to that school. (laughs) Like how? I don't I don't get it. The two are completely incongruous to me um, because that's my own limitation as a human being, I guess. <laughs> but it's always a shock to me because I have such a strong I have such a strong sensation of these schools being so ruinous yeah. to lives and not something that makes someone's life better, but makes their life significantly worse. So I just I don't, I really like this this take and the satirical take on this film helped Help me into this narrative in a very strong way. It'll just help me like get right into it. Yeah. And I think too, as people like you and I, I mean, we, we operate on some level of rebellion in our everyday lives, just being who we are. Right. Right. So there's a moment where I think I do connect to the idea of rebelling against this sort of oppressive system of this like prep school, traditional, you know, blue blooded, institution right um and i do commiserate with people who are trying to go against it like the neils and the mix and you know the people who are trying to resist a little bit but the system on a whole is very interesting for me it is not easy to dissect and it is something that we don't have any firsthand knowledge about um which makes it interesting but also is sort of like, I don't know, it kind of makes me relieved in a lot of ways to have not gone into something like this. I'm like, Jesus, I could not hack it in this. <laughs> I, I could couldn't not, do it. You know, I couldn't do it. I would either I would be like, 
like a goth little groundhog and just bury myself in the dirt. Isn't that, I think that was one episode where you're like, what do groundhogs do? They just bury themselves. I would just go out to the common area of these. And the, the landscape of these places is so gorgeous. Yeah. That it's just like, again, completely incongruous with the horrors that are happening within. So I don't know. I would go out to a field or a hill and just sit there and let the rain sweep me away. I don't know. I wouldn't be able to hack it. Yeah. I, I'm way too back talky. I, my primary reason for getting in trouble when I was a little kid was back talk. Yeah. You wouldn't have lasted at all with Norman Lloyd. Let's get serious. Hell no. Hell no. I loved, I like this theme a lot though. I like revisit. I like thinking about it in this way and kind of visiting it at yeah. a different point of life. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like the dance conservatory movies th- episode. Like I said, it's, it's this, uh, you know, uh, the two of us looking into this world, um, which is fascinating. And that's what movies are all about. Sometimes like, you know, you want to look at a way something works it's something that you just don't have any experience with and so exactly i love it for that too but woo great job you too <laughs> i won't be caning you today thank you so much for not using the paddle with the holes drilled in Ooh. it like extra brutal uh, uh corporal punishment went way too far in both of these films did you ever go to a school that had um spanking i did no no oh, yeah <gasps> was it religious girl hell no this was our public school when i was growing <gasps> up in goose creek south carolina i was in no. fifth grade and our middle school paddled and i remember i got in trouble with a bunch of other girls where we actually had to go to the principal's office every day during recess for like a week and i saw that paddle hang hanging from the bulletin board no yeah and i was like oh my god i don't want to do anything to have that paddle on my bare ass whatever i gotta do scared straight holy shit holy i did not have any of that yeah i i mean this was like eight like 80s like that's still way too late in the history of this nation for people to be paddling children in schools Mm. i mean i always like say it was the rural south and it was the 80s where they must have been able to get with that shit maybe they held on they were the last people to stop (laughs) damn i know that's a a whole that's like a bonus episode we got to talk about stuff oh completely i love school i love hearing about school stuff but um it's September. Like we're going back to school. I know. It's, hey, it's, even if you're not stepping foot in one, it is back to school time. Yeah. So hopefully you were prepped correctly. Um, oh, I see what you did there. Um, so what you did there is not the name of our podcast, by the way. If anybody, <laughs> do you ever hear that when people go, your podcast, I saw what you did there. I'm like, that's not the name of the podcast. Oh, only every interview I did for my book. <laughs> And I would constantly be writing into the publicist and being like, here is the name of my podcast. And then people would be like, so your podcast, I saw what you did there. And I'm like, that is not it. That is not it. I don't know how many ways or times I can say it. That ain't it. And also, not only not only getting it just the podcast name wrong, I cannot tell you how many interviewers just thought my grandma was dead. And I'm like, did you make it to the end of my book? I, to, to the point where I went back to my own book to reread the ending to be like, did I write that this bitch was dead? Because she is not even close. Whoever it was is like sending a text to their intern being like, 
you know, I didn't read this book. You were supposed <laughs> to give me notes. Why didn't you tell me the grandma was still alive? Fuck you. Your unpaid internship is over. The intern's revenge. Like, oh, yeah, that, that lady died. <laughs> that lady died. Oh, my God. Unfucking real. Well, on that note, <laughs> if, if you want to email us for any reason, <laughs> you can do so at I saw what you did pod at Gmail. You can also find us on our social media at I saw pod on Instagram and Twitter. And Millie, just for the just for the, the audience to know, Millie has been wearing a best in the biz shirt this entire recording from the Banana Boys <laughs> as she's about to tell you about our merch. Look, that's right. I am wearing a bananas T-shirt at the long sleeve. I it's love great. a long sleeve shirt. When I saw that on the merch store on exactly right media dot com. Yes. where you can get our merch, too. I was like, I have to have a long sleeve banana shirt that says best in the biz written across the, <laughs> the, tit. the chest. Yeah, the tit. <laughs> ah, so good. Those banana boys. God, I just I adore them. They've got the best merch. They're the just the, the loveliest. But I saw that shirt and I was like, mm hmm. Yeah, uh-huh. we got merch, too. We got yes. merch, too. Exactly right. Media And if you want even more from us, we have a whole bunch of bonus episodes up at Stitcher Premium exclusively at Stitcher Premium. You could use the promo code saw if you want to sign up for a free month and check it out. But why wouldn't you? It's yeah. great. We're pretty loose, loosey goosey over there in our uh, our bonus episodes. And it's very quickly becoming the only place where we read our reader mail. That's right. We're talking about White Lotus. We're talking about mail. It's a, it's a good old time. But let's talk about the movies for next week. Do you want to tell them they're never going to get this? They're never going to get it. I'm just going to tell you right now. You're never going to get it. Not this time. I don't know. I think we've got some pretty keyed in. Listeners, I'm I'm going to bet you one American dollar <laughs> that's that one person will get it. <laughs> our, our movies for next week are Insomnia from 2002 and Smokey and the Bandit from 1977. Even as I say it, I'm like, what is the theme? It's right. It's written right in front of me. And I'm like, wait, what? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So one American dollar to Millie if anyone gets this theme. Oh, my God. I will happily give you that dollar if somebody gets it. But I just looked at the, I just looked at these movies and I was like, honestly, what the fuck? Like, what the fuck do we even know? Baby girl, what is we doing? <laughs> and we know what we doing because we chose the damn theme. Damn. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun yes please join us next week in the meantime thank you danielle you're the thank best you, millie this is the greatest we'll see everybody next week This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our engineer is Annalise Nelson. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at I Saw Pod. 
email us at I saw what you did pod at Gmail. And please don't forget to listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. 